Inquisition Update, we're going to take an appropriate and timely intermission from our reading and discussion of the book, The Vatican Billions by Avril Manhattan, a book in which we have learned, among many other things, that the Roman Catholic Church is, above all, the church of mammon, the church of money, and that the wealthiest order of the Roman Catholic Church is the Jesuit order which Avril Manhattan says owns 51% of the stock of the Bank of America, and which F. Tupper Saucy, in his book, Rulers of Evil, implies that the Jesuits ultimately own the Federal Reserve Bank, to which our entire national debt is owed. This morning, my guest is Ken Bearchief of Tamaki Law, the Native American-run law firm who recently won a $166.1 million lawsuit against the Northwest Jesuit province for the sexual abuse of Native American children in Jesuit-run boarding schools and missions. By way of introduction, I'm going to read a few excerpts from a newspaper article dealing with the settlement of the case. The argument states in part, in a settlement that's being called historic, an order of the Roman Catholic priests, the Jesuit order, has agreed to pay $166.1 million to roughly 450 Native Americans who were sexually abused by priests. In the settlement, the Oregon province of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order, also agreed to issue written apologies to each victim and produced documentation that the religious order was aware of the abuse. According to the lawsuit, victims suffered sexual abuse at boarding schools run by the religious order in Washington, Idaho, and Montana over a period spanning the 1950s through the 1970s. The Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order, operated St. Mary's Mission and School for more than 60 years. Although the society filed bankruptcy, the richest of the rich Je uh, Roman Catholic orders, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order, filed bankruptcy after being hit with the lawsuits. It will sell off assets to pay only $48.1 million toward the settlement, while, get this, its insurer will pay the remaining $118 million. Here to talk about this case is my special guest, Ken Bearchief of Tamaki Law. Good morning, Ken, and God bless you for coming this morning, and please inform my listeners about these Jesuit atrocities. Yes, good morning, Tom. You know, um, I, I've been in this for a little over three years. Uh, the abuses that occurred at the Indian missions run by the Jesuits are, you know, you, you can't even fathom how long this went on and uh, how many victims there were. You know, there were 300 that came forward uh, in a short period of time. What happened was we filed a lawsuit against the Jesuits in uh, October. Uh, 2009, and they filed for bankruptcy protection in uh, February uh, 2010, four months after we filed the lawsuit against them. They tried everything they could do to get a dismissal of our lawsuit. They couldn't do that. They didn't want to face our, our plaintiffs in open court. They filed bankruptcy protection. And then from that point on, we were kind of just like going up uh, to in our business 
uh, doing a little advertising here and there. And then in August, the uh, judge, Judge Ferris, who was hearing this case in the federal bankruptcy court in uh, Portland, Oregon, because that's where the uh, uh, Jesuits are headquartered, uh, said that we had a cutoff date of November 30th to get out there and inform the public and Native American communities about this uh, deadline of November 30th. So we had just this three-month period to get out there and really start communicating. And it was a it was an education process because the victims, the child, victims of childhood sexual abuse, some may remember that they were victims of abuse. Others have tried desperately to block this out, never remember it, to not think about it, to train themselves. Anytime that anything comes up like that, they turn away. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. And um, so but the, what we had to educate them about was if you were a victim of childhood sexual abuse and you suffer from depression, anxiety, panic attacks, night terrors, nightmares, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, all these things that are trauma traits, sexual abuse victims. If you suffer from these and you're a victim of childhood sexual abuse, you're entitled to damages and you need to call us. And so by getting out there and just myself in Native American, uh, I was able to integrate into all of the tribal communities in Washington, Idaho, and Montana and really get in there on, on the grassroots among those people and talk to them, uh, let them know what I'm doing and what this is about, and then leave my cards or a flyer or whatever needed to be done. And uh, I would start getting calls. I go back, and uh, I can tell you about one incident. Uh, I was on the Colville Reservation. I was there in OMAC. Uh, I had a list of about 18 people. Uh, that had called. I went back to the reservation. From, I live on the Yakima Reservation in Yakima, Washington. And I went over to the Colville Reservation. And for a three-day period, I was there. I was interviewing victims of abuse. And this was the really first the first time that I had uh, a list like this of 18. And uh, only 14 showed up before that kind of held back. And that was pretty normal. You know, at first uh, time out, uh, people think that they can just go out and talk about it and tell what happened, but it doesn't work that way. This is a very personal experience, very traumatic. Uh, many, the majority have never told anyone before. And, and so they'll drop back and hold, hold, hold out for a while while they build up their courage to do this. So I was interviewing these 14 people, one after the other. And then I had one in uh, Bridgeport, Washington, as I was flying home. And so uh, I stopped there. And I saw this uh, woman, very small, slight woman, uh, in her mid-40s, who had been abused in the uh, early 1970s. We started talking and kind of introducing ourselves to one another. It's the Indian way we talk about little things. And we come to know who we are and where you're from, all of that. And then we started talking, and I, I just said, well, just tell me what happened. And we uh, started talking, and oh, I could just see and feel the pain that this woman went through being digitally penetrated by Father Morris, who was the uh, head of the St. Mary's Indian Mission School in Omak, Washington, for a period of one and a half years to the point of actual rape. And it, it, it was so visceral, you know, what she was telling me about and what she was re-experiencing and going through at that moment. It was heartbreaking. And uh, I remember after I left, uh, I had my daughter with me on that trip. And uh, 
I got in the car, I drove about a block and a half. I pulled over and I just broke down and cried. Yeah. You know, it was just a... Listen, Ken, I, I can understand the emotional component of this thing. Uh, what I describe this as a global pedophile priest pandemic around the world. This isn't unique to the Northwest Jesuit province. And I view, I view the three-month limitation on the deadline set by the judge as an obvious uh, obstruction to your investigation. Is that the way you see it? Oh, yeah, it, definitely it was. I mean, we, we should have had, you know, six months or even longer because you know, bringing in, actually there were only 200 victims. They say 300, but there were only 200 victims of sexual abuse that came forward in Washington, Idaho, and Montana. The other 50 were uh, physical abuse victims that they suspected that, that was psychosexual abuse without actual, I guess, the normal uh, acts of sexual abuse. These were psychosexual that came through, and so they're not really counted as uh, uh, pull out sexual abuse plans. Anyway, yes, it was. I mean, there we already know that they, there's a period called future claims that will come after this is settled in August or September. Funds are distributed from the settlement. There are people that never came forward and they're called future claimants. And we know that there are so many of them out there that are going to be coming forward after this period. But what is happening is that the Jesuits and the uh, at court out of this uh, $166.1 million is only going to put about $6.8 million aside for these future claimants. Yeah. And I don't see that as being nearly enough, you know. Uh, no, obviously not. And what, what, what's, striking to me, what's striking to me, Ken, is that uh, Ireland just finished uh, a long, a, a decade-long uh, investigation into priest pedophilia in Ireland, and they they—that was the product of, of a decade of research. And it, it's appalling to me that the court uh, would set uh, a restriction on the length of time you had to gather information, uh, and uh, uh, clearly an act of obstruction. And that's what the Jesuit order pushed for. We yeah. tried to go around that, try to get them to extend that out. And the influences on Judge Paris were that we need to do this now. Uh, this is, you know, we need to, we want the, the bankruptcy, the Jesuits in bankruptcy. We're really pushing for that, saying that they wanted to resolve this, and blah, blah, blah. I don't know why Judge Paris made the decision to go along with that, but that's what she did. Um, you know, we, there were a lot of things that went on, but I can tell you about the, just a comment about Ireland. I was in a Minneapolis airport and um, sitting and talking, and I met this uh, Irish uh, man, and uh, we were sitting there talking, kind of like, well, what will you do, you know, just passing time because we had so many hours to wait there. We started talking, I started telling him about the Jesuit abuse case, and he was just uh, very interested, and then he told me, this is a comment that he made to me. He said, when he was a kid, this guy's about 60 years old. He said, when I was a kid in Ireland, he said, you know, he said, we didn't talk about this. You know, we never read it. He said, but I can tell you this. He said, I, I look back on it now. And he said, if you weren't boogered by a priest in Ireland, he said, there was something wrong with you. He yeah. said, that's how bad it was. Yeah. You know, that, that's it's almost uh, the same thing that happened at Indian missions. And, and some know. people find it. Some people find it uh, somewhat strange that people wait until their fifties and sixties before they come forward with stories of pedophile priest abuse. But it's not strange at all, given the fact that there's so much stigma attached to sodomy, and so much stigma attached to to sexual abuse in general that people have to live with these, these these realities in secret all their lives, usually suffering a, a, a drug and alcohol abuse as a way to cope, and then only then in the later years of their life find the courage uh, to, to, come, to, to come forward and tell their stories. Is this what you find in your investigations? Yes, it's true. It's absolutely true across the board. You know, the majority. Uh, of the people that have had 
she finally came forward and asked to be contacted, and I went and visited with them. This was the first time, when I talked to them, it was the first time they had ever told anyone. And I can tell you this, we have one woman who was a client of ours. She's 70, no, 87 years old, abused in the 1930s by a priest. And uh, she talked to me about witnessing some of her schoolgirl mates that were at St. Mary's Mission and uh, what was going on and happening to them. And, and then it eventually happened to her. And uh, when she told her parents, her mother, so ingrained, so indoctrinated into the Catholic faith, uh, called her daughter a liar, uh, wouldn't speak with her. Their relationship after that was strained because she held to saying, this is what happened to me. I don't want to go back. Eventually, her father told her, you don't have to. You don't have to go back. Not saying he believed her, but he just told her she didn't have to go. And so, you know, there's so many stories like this that people did with these children. did try to tell someone. did try to go and get help. And they were just either disbelieved or even when they were believed, they would both don't ever say anything, don't ever talk about this. And they would be sent back. And I uh, was asked one time, even these uh, grandparents that had been to this mission, uh, in, to Womack uh, at uh, St. Mary's would send their children back even though they were victims of abuse. And, but I can look at that. You know, more, the majority of these uh, people were victimized one at a time unless there were others that were there at the same time. But uh, they always believe they're the only one. It only happened to me. You know, they don't think that this is going on with the others. In the research that I've done on the subject, I find that to be a, a common thing, that people who are victims of priest pedophilia uh, stay quiet because they believe that they're the only ones that have suffered this abuse. And this is why I brought you on the program this morning to show us that just in the Northwest Jesuit province, Oregon, Montana, and Washington, and I believe even Alaska, there were 450 cases. And not only that, the, uh, the BBC did a documentary that disclosed that there are 4,500 open cases of priest pedophilia in the courts of this country. This is not an isolated incident. There are not just one or two victims of priest pedophilia. This is a global pandemic. It's out of control. And it's not just in the United States. It's in Ireland. It's in Germany. It's in Italy. It's in every Roman Catholic country in the world. And I think it's time for society to put a stop to it. You know, what I've, what I've discovered in my investigations is that these Jesuit Indian missions, there were uh, four that operated in Washington, Idaho, and Montana. There was uh, St. Mary's Mission in Colville Reservation. There was uh, Sacred Heart in uh, Idaho at Desmet. There was St. Ignatius Mission that was located at St. Ignatius, Montana. And there was St. Paul's Mission that was in Hayes, Montana on the uh, Grovine Indian Reservation. Uh, these four Indian missions in my research, going back to the 1940s, these pedophile priests, they were shifted around to each one of these mission schools and back again. And they would be at St. Mary's Mission four or five years. They would go to Sacred Heart and be there for two or three years, and then to St. Ignatius again. Yeah, that's always, been, that's, always been, that's always been the Jesuit strategy or the yeah. Vatican strategy. When they, when they have a pedophile priest, they simply move them from one diocese to the next. To keep yeah. them out of keep them out of trouble, they never put a stop to the pedophilia. No, and and that created a, a this cycle of abuse. I mean, they, they, everywhere they went, they sexually abused children, yeah. and so each of these, all these priests were going around to all of these Indian missions, and they would abuse and abuse and abuse, and then they get sent somewhere else. And even when they got sent to a non-Indian parish, like Father Ferretti, who was a known pedophile priest. Even when he went to a white community, uh, repeated these same patterns of abuse on, on, on those little farming communities, those isolated communities, with one parish priest, and he would be the one going around to the homes, 
uh, visiting with them and making friends, and all the time he's grooming his relationships with the adult while doing that, and he's grooming the children. He would go, yeah. oh, and, and pay such special attention, and the family would be so pleased that, oh, he just loves their little daughter, their little boy, they're just so special. Yeah. Uh, not realizing that what he's doing in the background, he's groping them, touching them, yeah. digitally penetrating them, trying to isolate them away so he could do what he wanted to do. And this was his pattern and practice right up until the time he died. Uh, you know, he was an old man, an old grandfather man in his 70s, and he was still doing what he had done for 40 years. It's taught, it's taught and believed in the Roman Catholic Church that the priest is the holy man. It is also taught that the priest is the creator of the creator. When he consecrates the host and it becomes the Eucharist, it becomes the blood, body, soul, and divinity of Christ. That little piece of bread becomes Jesus Christ to be worshipped and offered again on the, as a sacrifice on the altar of the Mass. These priests, particularly Jesuit priests, are considered to be godly men. And there's also a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that a, a parishioner has no more business bringing a case or a complaint against a priest than a slave has to bring a case against his slave master. That's an official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And we talk about these things all the time on Inquisition Update. And it's time for the American people to come to grips with Roman Catholicism. What is it really all about? And what is it about the Roman Catholic Church that fosters this environment of rampant pedophilia by the priests of Rome? And people suggest that because they're celibate, that they... they, they seek sexual relief but the fact of the matter is they pick on children because because they can intimidate the children the children are taught to look up to the priests that they are altar Christos altar Christ another Christ and they're they're simply threatened with with uh, divine retribution if they reveal these secrets that's why the victims sit on these these uh, abuses all of their lives before finally before they die they they muster up the courage to tell the truth about this and uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that Tamaki Law Firm have taken the case I'm particularly uh, happy that Tamaki Law Firm is an, uh, a, a Native American organization fighting for justice for Native Americans who have always been regarded by the Roman Catholic Church as less than human. And this needs to stop. You know, Tom, I can tell you this, you know, these uh, Jesuit priests on these reservations, you take children five and six years old, you take them away to these Indian missions, and, and during the 1940s, 50s, and even in the early 60s, this was mandated by law. They had to, well, of course, they had to go to school. But in many of these uh, Indian reservations, they're very rural communities, uh, far outlying home sites, and they didn't have a regular bus that came out to these schools. So uh, for that reason, they were forced to go to an Indian mission. Now, the Colville Reservation had an Indian mission, which was St. Mary's. The Coeur d'Alene and Lapway Reservations had another uh, mission, and it was a Jesuit mission, Sacred Heart. The same was true on the Blighthead Reservation with the St. Ignatius uh, Church and School, and the same thing on the Fort Belknap Indian community that had St. Paul's. They had children that they were there, they were captive, vulnerable children. And at these ages of five, six, seven years old, and they're coming there, they're staying there year-round. Many of them were year-round. They didn't even go home in the summers. And we're coming up indoctrinated. Returning to my guest, Ken Berchi from Tamaki Law, the law firm in Washington that successfully uh, prosecuted the Northwest Jesuit province for decades long sexual abuse of Native American children. The Jesuit order has simply claimed bankruptcy so as to avoid the, uh, the penalty for their crimes. And to add insult to injury and complete indifference 
to the plight of the victims of this Northwest Jesuit province. Jesuit Father Patrick J. Conroy, S.J., has become the new chaplain and spiritual counselor to the members of the United States House of Representatives. Patrick J. Conroy, S.J., is a member of this notorious Northwest Jesuit province. Now, the House of Representatives of the U.S. government is being counseled by a Jesuit priest of this very same Northwest Jesuit province. Has the United States become Sodom and Gomorrah? Back to my guest, Ken Berchie from Tamaki Law. Yeah, you know, just about uh, this uh, Conroy that was uh, appointed to be the clergy advisor to the Congress, uh, we were contacted and we made a comment that no priest from the Jesuit order should be in that position. You know, their history of sexual abuse, this goes only, these cases that were filed only goes up to the mid-60s um, against the Northwest Jesuit order. Do we believe that sexual abuse stopped in 1974 when this mission closed down or these other missions? Uh, the only mission school that's still in operation that's run by the Jesuits is the uh, uh, St. Paul's mission on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation is still going. Yeah. And uh, the, but the churches at these uh, sites are still in operation. The thing of it is is that we don't believe that sexual abuse ever stopped. We're, no. The other shoe is going to fall. As these uh, children of abuse in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, as they grow and mature and get to a point in life where they are going to cognitively begin to deal with uh, what happened to them, and are going to be trying to come forward there. So this victimization, it never stops. We know that. In fact, I went to South Dakota about a year ago, and I started because there were two Jesuit schools there, one at uh, St. Francis on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The other was on the uh, Pine Ridge Reservation, and that was Holy Rosary. What we got down there and found out was that these things had been coming out for the past five or six years, and uh, there were uh, a limited success in networking among the Indian people to bring out the claimants. So I went down there, and I spent three weeks and during that time, I came home with uh, 46 new claimants yeah. that uh, we represent in, in South Dakota now, not only against the Jesuits, but against the, the diocese who owns some of these mission schools down there, right. as well as the Old Blake Society. Uh, and, and it's the same, same history, exactly identical, same history to what happened here in the Northwest, the same sexual abuses of children, the same violence, physical violence, uh, torture of, of young children. Uh, I, I, you know, I've talked to so many uh, victims of abuse, and even even the worst sexual abuse that can be committed upon a child for, for years and years, what they're angry about, not, not only the sexual, but they're so angry because they have these scars uh, over their eyebrows, uh, broken noses, uh, split lips, uh, broken arms and legs, uh, bars on their backs or, or whatever from whippings. Signs of intimidation? Is that way yeah, is that the way that, you see that's it? That's exactly what it was. It was, it was right. physical abuse on a, on a level that is unimaginable. And these things were regarded as routine punishment. Yeah. Oh that's the they're just being punished, you know, but when you're whipped so badly that you have scars, lifelong scars on your back you know, where your ribs are being broken from being kicked by a priest. Um, there there's even a couple of victims that had been kicked in the scrotum so hard, they walked through, they, they said that their, their scrotums were like the size of oranges. Couldn't walk, uh, you know, for a period of time, and there was such agony, they were never given medical treatment. None of these children were ever taken to the hospitals or to doctors because that would expose them for what was happening. Never, never received medical treatment, except by maybe a nurse or somebody that was on staff at the Indian Missions, and that's as far as it went. These, these two men that are more, that had this happen to them, never had children, you know? And they know, they look back and they know that that's what happened to them. 
Uh, These priests are not priests, they're hardened criminals. They are. They're, why they're, why they're, are they not in penitentiaries? You know, that, that was, you know, every single victim that I have ever talked to that came forward, the first thing that they wanted to know is, can we put them in jail? You know, are they going to be charged, you know? And I would have to tell them we can't. The statute of limitations has long expired. And this is the only form of justice we can get for you, is to sue them and, and to make them pay, pay you for the abuse of This is how important it is. This is how important it is for victims of priest pedophilia to come forward, to put to put all their 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 fears aside, and to help society correct this matter. They placed they placed statutes of limitations on cr criminal prosecution of these priests, which protects the priests from timid claimants. No, this is and, something that and obviously the Vatican's not doing anything to to correct this matter other than just make platitudes and move continue to move these priests around. It's time for criminal prosecution. And that means the be, complainants have to come forward. There should be no statute of limitations for criminal prosecution of pedophiles, of child molesters of child rapists. There should be no statute of limitations. In fact, there was a, a, a legislation that was introduced into the Washington here a few months ago, and it failed. It failed to pass. They have an 18-year age limit on coming forward with a three-year extended period for, you know, statute of limitations for discovery, that discovery period. And it's so narrow, so limited. None of these children the, unless they're caught in the act, unless they're suspected of, of child sexual abuse and somebody that's an adult looks into it finds out about it, uh, right. then it's reported. But very rarely ever does a victim of child, or, of child sexual abuse ever go and tell anyone. Yeah. They're told, don't you ever tell your mother, I can harm your mother, I can harm your father. Uh, that's right. And a, priest, and a priest telling a young child, that if you ever say anything, you'll commit a mortal sin and you'll burn in hell. And when these that's why these priests are, don't. That's why these priests don't prey on adults. They prey on children because they're so easily intimidated. They are, and, and the, so the priests young. are are in so much control of the young minds of the Roman Catholic people. Absolutely, that's that's the thing. They're they're young minds. They can imagine hell in a way that an adult does not. It's so uh, vivid to them when a priest tells them what hell is and how they're going to suffer. Say anything, they shut their mouth. They're not going to. They don't want to burn in hell. Little children can picture that, and they—that's a fear. That's a nightmare. They don't want to. They don't want to have to suffer that. And you know, that's what the, the priests use on them. Was not only their status as the priest, as the big man, as the all-powerful, the voice of God, the messenger. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. No one. No one ever dared. They never dared to say anything. And when they did, like I said before, they were disbelieved. Or even if they heard what they said and knew it to be true, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, what could you say against the priest? You know, you wouldn't dare. Yeah. Not Indian people. Not Indian people. You know, during those days, there was a great deal of prejudice and discrimination. Uh, Indian people were very poor. And, uh, you know, the... So they they, did, they had no power against a white man, much least, much much less than the priest in the community, and uh, who, who enjoyed such high status. But this isn't about you know sexual childhood, sexual abuse isn't about sexual gratification. It's not about sex at all. It's about power and control. Right. And 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 you know no parent ever sends their child away to any mission sexually abused. They sent them there to these schools to be educated, to be cared for, to be fed. And uh, for the very reason that I said a moment ago about the poverty levels and the isolation of things, they had to go to school. That's why they sent them there. That's not what happened. You know? And uh, it's, it's even in these communities today, there's a great deal of pain. But what, what came with this uh, cycle of a, this abuse that went on in these Indian missions, has become a cycle of abuse in Indian communities to this day, where there's childhood sexual abuse, there's violence, divorce, uh, domestic violence, you know, and uh, it's just a 
cycle of abuse that came into and and the and the resulting alcohol and drug abuse the the trying to escape from feelings or memories and memories and memories that goes with all of this to self-medicate from your depression and anxiety they drink they drug and it's a cycle of abuse that began at the Indian mission schools I can tell you this every every community any community reservation that has a mission school or a Catholic Indian school you can see in the communities the dysfunctionality right there were other reservations that didn't have these Indian mission schools where the children weren't taken away you know by the dozens and kept for you know 12 13 years isolated away from their homes and their families it's like the Crow Reservation in northern Montana and or north, uh, southeastern Montana and the Cheyenne Reservation when I visited those communities they didn't have an Indian mission school on their reservation and so and they're smaller they're more close in and they're, they're closer to communities that had public schools they are very strong in their traditions, culture, and their language. Because if you you remember, what was the mission at these uh, residential schools? Their mission was to kill the Indian and save the man. This was the last bastion of genocide against the Native American. You know, in, in the last century, leading to the 20th century, it was estimated that there were 25 million Native Americans that were killed in the expansionism in the West. Yeah. Uh, at the turn of the century, in the 19th century, there were only 250,000 estimated living Native Americans in this country. We now only number about 2 million. Uh, what, what was suffered in that 100-year period, 25 million killed, was the worst genocide uh, uh, in the history of mankind against any race or culture. You know, I call it a holocaust that's what we all know it to be. We, you know, I've had people criticize me and say, oh, no, no, don't use that term. That's, that's just Jewish, you know, they were the ones that... You know, no, I, I, just, I describe it as a Native American Holocaust. It and I'm work. convinced that if your investigation continues in the Jesuit provinces adjoining the northern tier of states in this country and Canada, you are going to uncover a Holocaust, a sexual Holocaust, of Native American people, and I hope God strengthens your efforts and blesses your work, and you can bring this to Inquisition update and eventually get some mainstream media coverage of this ongoing Holocaust with no end in sight. You know, you, you mentioned a little while ago about the power of the Catholic Church and the Jesuits being that military arm of the Vatican. You know, you go to Rome and you've got your, 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 your the Vatican here, just a couple of blocks away is the General Curizia, which is the Jesuit headquarters in Rome. And they call, of course, the Pope is the White Pope. And then there's the Black Pope, who is the Father General of the Jesuits. Yeah. And these are, these are the richest orders in the world. They control so much wealth. Uh, they control countries. Here, you know, in my investigations, I talked to you once about going to South Dakota, and I started investigating down there. That was in January of uh, last year, 2010. While I was there, I put up some flowers, I put up some flyers, I put up some uh, ads, I started networking in the Indian communities and traveling around to the reservations there. And, uh, and in March, as a result of my presence there, Steve Smith, who was the attorney for the Sioux Falls Diocese, wrote an amendment to the South Dakota State Statute 261025 with the law for childhood sexual abuse. And in that law, there was no age limit. There was a three-year statute of limitations from the time of discovery to three years to file a claim for childhood sexual abuse. That was the law. And you could hold the uh, diocese accountable, you could hold hold the school accountable if it was a teacher, uh, some employer accountable if it was one of their people. There was no uh, limits on that. He amended the statute to say that 40 years, age 40 was a cutoff date for coming forward. No monetary damages, and you could only hold the perpetrator of abuse accountable and no one else. No other state no other state has that limitation, you know? And this was a, just a step back 
in time. And this was South Dakota? This South, was South Dakota. Dakota? And, and th this, this law that was presented in March, it was presented on March uh, 4th to the legislature. It passed on March 8th. It then went to the governor for his signature, and he signed it into law on March 29th. It was a three-week period. It was just rushed right through. I called it the Midnight Express of going through the legislature yeah. to the Senate, to the to the uh, uh, to the uh, governor of uh, South Dakota, who was Mike Browns, and he signed it into law. It became effective July 1st, 2010. Now, the amazing thing about this, the truly harmful I mean, not only the law, the cutoff period, with that law, that 40 years of age virtually cuts off all of the victims of childhood sexual abuse that went to the Indian mission schools in South Dakota uh, because they're all over 40 years of age, the majority of them. And so this law just eliminated the victims' rights to justice in South Dakota. That, Stephen Smith, is the, Steve Smith is the attorney for the diocese who did that along with Senators uh, Garnos and two congressmen, Junki and Dedrick, all Catholics, yeah. you know, that came forward and put this through and pushed it through That's the That's the error. The that governor, is the error of having Roman, that is the error of having Roman Catholics in government. In England, in Protestant England, Catholics were forbidden to hold public office for these very reasons. And the error of the United States is to allow Catholicism to, to continue uncontrolled and unmonitored. There's a built-in safety net that people suffering the sexual abuse of Roman Catholic priests wait to the later years in life to come forward with these with with these horrible these horrific stories of priest pedophilia and the legislation. Uh, did you say North Dakota or South Dakota? South Dakota. South Dakota is passing legislation to limit the, the, the liability of Roman Catholic priests and priest pedophilia. It's a crime, and we all know that the wheels of government turn extremely slowly, except when they're protecting the rights of these Roman Catholic priests and they're taking away the rights of the American people. Roman Catholicism controls the government, controls the, the courts, and we've got to put a stop to it. And the only way we can put a stop to it is to take this filthy, disgusting story out from under the covers and give it the, the, the shining light of the sun of exposure and put this in the public discourse. The American people cannot continue to be so pious as to allow this atrocity to continue in this country. God is a righteous God, and he will hold us to account for how we handle or don't handle this pedophile priest pandemic, not only in this country, but the rest of the world. It's an outrage, and God's not going to, God is not going to continue to, to postpone his judgment. You know, I, I might tell you something. You know, in my investigations into the Jesuit order and uncovering these uh, priests who were guilty of uh, committing sexual abuse on children, what I discovered is that in the late 1950s, that Cardinal Spellman, this is the Cardinal that officiated at JFK's funeral, the most powerful clergy at that time in the United States. Right, the American Pope he was called. Yes, that's what he was. And he went to St. Ignatius Mission in St. Ignatius, Montana. And he abused children, sexually abused right. children. This is, this is now becoming, you know, I've reported this, I've talked with networking in with other priests, or excuse me, other lawyers uh, in, in uh, uh, California and in South Dakota, and we're discovering wherever he went, he committed these abuses on children. And these right. were all be long, be long known about, but no one ever publishes anything about Cardinal Spellman. Right. Not the officiator of JFK's uh, funeral, the most powerful cardinal in the United States in his era. You know, a pedophile? Yes. That's exactly what he was. All right, this little, this little boy, he passed away uh, he was a grown man in his early 60s, but uh, mid-60s. But he passed away, but he gave us his account 
about Cardinal Spellman. And he was a little altar boy that was always around as a residence. They kept him around, this little guy. He could speak Latin like a Roman. He understood it, he could speak it, and they would make, you know, call him, and he would, they would tell him things in Latin. He would do it. I mean, that's, you know, he was like a little sponge, and he just absorbed this. But he also was a witness to sexual abuse and physical violence on the Indian kids that were there. He was a, he was, even though he was favored by these priests, he was terrified of them. And then, when, by the time he reached the age of eight, they were sexually abusing him, sodomizing him. But when Cardinal Spellman was there, he was there in the Jesuit residence. He was there when Mother Finbar, who was the, the, the nun, the Mother Superior there at St. Ignatius, came and told Cardinal Spellman, any boy or girl of your choosing, I'll bring him to you. You know, they all knew what was going yeah. on. They were all part of it. The not police department were, knew were about Jesuit. it, too. Yeah, there were, you know, not only the Jesuit priests who were abusing these children, but the nuns, too, at St. Yeah. Ignatius, Montana, at St. LaBray, at these Indian missions in South Dakota, at St. Mary's in, in Omec, wherever they had these Jesuit priests, then they had a nun order there. These women were so capable of not only physical violence on young children, but of sexual abuse themselves. You know, there's no limit to what went on at these residential schools. Yeah. It was like it was open house for pedophilia. It was just, uh, and you know, and, and, and these children will talk about, these are grown people now, but when they were children, they talk about what they witnessed and what they saw. And someone would come in, like uh, this woman named Sister Catherine, who was a uh, uh, Native American that went to St. Ignatius. And she was a good woman. She cared and loved these children. And she, they started going to her for comfort. And, and maybe these priests thought, these, these kids are going to start telling them what's going on. They got rid of her. The same thing with a decent priest who would be sent into the community at these residential schools. If he was a good man, if he was not a pedophile, they didn't want him there. They only wanted people there that would either go along with what was what was being done, or they were part of it. Yeah. And that was the atmosphere of these Indian commission schools. The predatory level was across the board. You know, it, it was just it was unbelievable. These were pedophile paradises, and uh, captive young Indian children with nowhere to go. Many of them were there year year round. I, I can tell you about this one woman who came to me and told me that at the age of eight, when Father Moore started sexually abusing her, until the age of thirteen when she left the mission. You know, my lifelong, uh, no self worth, no self esteem, depression, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, relationship issues. You know, she's married twice and had children. You know, it just on dysfunctional on level. Now, I believe it was only until she was in her in her forties that she was able to go back to school and finally start uh, re-educating herself. But she still had all these fears, you know, no man could invade her space, you know, and she was always alert to that someone thinks that if someone made a comment to her that, that oh, I like your hair or you, you look nice today, I just recoil in fear because, you know, this is uh, anything involving a man, you know, would be... It's so intimidating to her. She didn't want to be noticed. She didn't want to be admired or, or even thought of in a nice way because that would trigger sexual abuse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it messed up so many people for decades of their life. And here's Look, the Ken, we're, we're late coming 50s. up on, we're, Ken, we're coming up on the end of the broadcast. I'd, I'd like to make a comment or two. Yes, please. The Bible, the Bible tells us what the cause of this is. The Roman Catholic Church is not only the Church of Mammon; it is the Church of idolatry. They have an unnatural affection for idols, and therefore God sends them a divine recompense. An unnatural affection for like sex. And if you want to read about it in God's holy book, open your Bible to Romans chapter one and see the root cause of sodomy and pedophilia in this country in God's holy book. Thanks for coming. Ken Baird, Chief Tamaki Law. I'll be in touch with you on the phone. We'll continue our discussions tomorrow on Inquisition Update.
That's right. It's now a time for a word from our awesome sponsor, Wendy's Boutique Limited. Wendy'sLimited.com. And uh, Wendy'sLimited.com is offering the hottest new designer trends and brand name couture fashion styles. So you have to hear about Wendy's Boutique. Wendy'sLimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com now has designer women's apparel and fine jewelry, sexy boutique fashions, very best prices online. And you know that at Wendy'sLimited.com, uh, they know what a woman is, or what a woman really is, right? So if you're a beautiful woman or if you know a beautiful woman, and if you don't, stop listening to this show, okay? Right now, just stop. But if you happen to know a beautiful woman and you are a beautiful woman, you have to know about Wendy'sLimited.com. So these are the, the sexiest boutique fashions anywhere, very best prices online, beautiful luxury products, guaranteed authentic, guaranteed, no Chinese knockoffs ever. So this is the real deal. This is the real, real, the legit, best prices, hottest couture gear, fragrances. We had Tom Ford shades, great deal on the Tom Ford shades. Everybody loves Tom Ford shades. So you can expect to find Gucci apparel, Hermes shoes. Prada jewelry, all at wendyslimited.com. And you got to remember, wendyslimited.com is really now famous for canceling Balenciaga when it mattered, right? So we're not having any of that over here. This is a woman-owned enterprise, all-American, family-run organization, wendyslimited.com, wendyslimited.com. You got to come join the craze. Hottest new designer trends, guys. Wendy's Boutique Limited, we need your support. And uh, she's been courageous to support the show, wendyslimited.com.